Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Craig D. Lounsborough once said, My prayer is that God will continue to love me enough to refuse to answer the prayers I'm praying that I shouldn't be praying. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 1,000th broadcast. Man. Is that amazing or what? That's crazy. (laughs) And we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. And we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting. So here we are. 1,000 times over. You'd think we'd get it right by now, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website, messages, Facebook, and our chat board. So, Jonathan, let's get started. Hey, missed you last week there, brother. Hey, well, Julie did a great job filling in. I'm so thankful she she was amazing. She did well, but you know, I missed Jonathan's voice over there. (laughs) So, we enjoyed... uh, a trip away for our 30th wedding anniversary. It was nice. That's pretty awesome, man. That's pretty awesome. That's great. What's the subject today? Well, Rick, our question is, will prayer change your life? And our theme text is found in Psalms chapter 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. All right. Will prayer change your life? Now, prayer is a staple of religion. If you don't follow any particular religion, then perhaps you meditate. The point is, humans by and large are tuned to opening their minds to some kind of external power or tranquility. For many, this opening of their minds provides a sense of security and peace as they feel heard, accepted, and cared for. So, Is prayer a commodity that should be passed out to and encouraged among the the masses? Is it an an elixir that can be taken to cure what ails you? How does prayer even work? What are its key ingredients and what's its process? Or is there a process? Can prayer, will prayer change your life? That's a big question, Jonathan. And, and folks, it's always our objective with each subject that we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. And don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world and we may even include your comments on the air. 
Okay, so the chat room is alive and well and functional. Get in and be a part of that. That'd be great. So, so Jonathan, this is a huge, huge, enormous subject. So due to the enormity of the subject at hand, we're going to look at prayer primarily as it is defined and exampled in the Bible. As we have done so often in the past, we will look to David and the Psalms to help us establish a firm footing. And really, what we're going to talk about today, Jonathan, is not just the only way to pray. It is an example of how prayer works. Um, but as, as we get started with this, there's a lot of different words in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are translated that give you a sense of prayer. So instead of going through, you know, them and, you know, defining what the words, the, 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 all of the words, Jonathan, let's just give a summation of the basic biblical words used to describe prayer and, and the kind of meaning that they have. Why don't, you, why don't you go through that for us? Good idea, Rick. A reflection, devotion, a contemplation, by implication, an utterance, to intercede, to seek or ask, intercession, Supplication by implication, a hymn, entreaty, to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, an oratory, petition. Okay, those are some of the words, not all of them, but there's a lot of variety of definition there, isn't there? It really is. So, you know, what is prayer? It's a lot of things. And, you know, basically it's communication with God, and it covers a lot of our lives. And for the definitions and where all those words came from and all of that, Seek Your Rewind, the bonus material, it has them listed out by, by words and what the words are and, and what the actual definitions are. And so, folks, if you do not subscribe to Seek Your Rewind, uh, the full edition, I don't know what you're waiting for. It's a great example of putting what we talk about into a PDF file format and giving you something to, to hold on to and work with. So simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and hit the newsletter sign-up tab. Okay, so right off the bat, if you don't get CQ Rewind, the full edition, it's really something to try out. It's a free service. If you don't like it, the one click of a button unsubscribes you, and that's the end of that. All right, so with all of these words, Jonathan, it covers a lot of different senses of our lives. What does it tell us? I think, you know what, it tells us that we as frail human beings do a lot of things to try and focus our minds on spiritual things. And I think that's a really good idea. We got to be focusing our minds on spiritual things. So, Rick, do you have an answer to our main question right off the bat? Uh, will prayer change your life? Okay. Uh, well, all right, all right, here's what we'll do. Um, this is... Uh, all right, I'll give you an answer. No. Let's hear it. No. No. <laughs> now. That's not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> well, let's understand that the answer, like everything, needs to be understood. It needs to be understood in its proper context. But let's start with that as a place to begin. Will prayer change your life? No, it won't. But. There's more to it than just that. So if you walk away just saying, wow, they said prayer won't change your life, amazing, then you are not doing yourself any, any justice here by allowing the whole story to unfold before you. So good, I'm glad you asked me that at the beginning, and that, that might be a surprise answer, but it's an important answer to work with. Okay, what we're going to be doing is we'll be examining prayer throughout this whole podcast, but we're also going to be talking about meditation by way of the sound bites as we discuss prayer to understand the connection between the two. 
And Jonathan, here's the thing. Meditation can be a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. So it's really important to set up what meditation for a Christian is and what meditation for a Christian is not. So we're using these sound bites from um, Unlearn, what is biblical meditation? We've got a few of them that we're going to play throughout the, the podcast that gives you a sense of meditation in its different forms. We're going to start with Eastern meditation. So let's listen to the definitions mentioned here. Eastern religion and New Age spiritualism has had such a strong influence on our world that when most people hear the word meditation, they instantly think of yoga poses and chanting mantra. But is that what the Bible has in mind when it speaks about meditation? The object of Eastern and New Age meditation is to focus on emptying the mind of thoughts or images and trying to enter a trance-like hypnotic state in which their prefrontal cortex is basically turned off. They're trying to place their mind into an alpha mode to avoid any active thinking or logic because this makes them more receptive to the demonic spiritual influence they are seeking to find. Okay, now it's interesting. You can tell the guy's a Christian <laughs> because yeah. he says at the end, you know, it makes them more receptive to the demonic spiritual interest that they're seeking to find. Now, let me explain that most people that meditate are not looking for demonic spiritual influence. No, they're not. But here's the problem. When you clear your mind, when you take everything out and just look for something to come in, what you attract is generally dark, not light. And that's something to be really, really careful of. So really, one of the first ideas here, the first lessons here in prayer is with a Christian, our meditation should not be that Eastern brand of meditation. We should not go down that road because it opens you up to influences that are not at all Christ-like. Okay, having said that, you had used Psalm 143, verse 1 as the theme scripture for the podcast today. That's right, Rick. Okay, and we're going to use that Psalm 143 as a basic foundation for our discussion. So let's get a little bit of background on this psalm. Let's go to one of the commentators, John Gill, about when this psalm was written, what it was written about. This psalm was composed by David when he fled from Absalom, his son, according to the title of it in the Septuagint Vulgate Latin versions. Okay, so this psalm was composed by David when he was running away from Absalom. And it's interesting because last week in the complaining program, we used a psalm that had it was at the same kind of time, same period of David's life. And what te that tells you is David's life was in a great turmoil at that point in time. So this psalm is when he is his own son has turned against him and is trying to, to take his, his, his throne in Israel. Now, let's look at how this psalm is built before we talk about it. And again, let's go to the Expositor's Bible for a little bit of discussion on that. The former half, verses 1 through 6, is complaint. The latter, verses 7 through 12, is petition. Okay, and again, last week's podcast was about complaining. And so this, what you're going to see, follows the same basic idea that David uses when he's complaining. And remember, complaining is a good thing when you complain to the right parties with the right spirit to look for the right kind of solution. Go ahead. The complaint branches out into a plaintive description of the psalmist's peril, verses 1 through 3, and a melancholy 
disclosure of his feelings, verses 4 through 6, while the prayer is similarly parted into cries for deliverance, verses 7 through 9, and for inward enlightenment and help in verses 10 through 12. So you, this psalm is very neatly divided into three verse sections, and we're going to take those three verse sections uh, as we go through the rest of the podcast. But let's focus right now just on the first verse. So Jonathan, I know you read it before as a theme scripture, but reread Psalm 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Okay. We used a lot of different words and, and, and descriptions of prayer earlier, just a few minutes ago. When he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, what word, what definition, what description is being used in this particular situation? Well, Rick, uh, intercession, supplication by implication of him. All right, and that's interesting. Intercession and supplication give a whole different feeling than a hymn. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea, now remember, a lot of David's prayers were turned into hymns. That's right. So you have that sense of, of praise that goes with them, but the idea of for intercession and supplication, and that gives you a sense of seriousness, okay? So hear my prayer, O Lord, o Lord. and then he says, give ear to my supplication. So now use the word prayer. And the word supplication, what's, what's the difference? What's the, what's the word supplication actually mean? Well, Rick, it's an earnest prayer. Okay, it's an earnest prayer. And that word for supplication comes from the Strong's number 2603. And I think this is important, the, word, the root word. So go to the, to the definition of the root word for this earnest prayer. Properly, to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior to favor, bestow, causatively to implore. Okay, so the image is one bending or stooping down in kindness to someone who's inferior. So when, we, when he says, give ear to my supplication, what he's asking God to do is bend down to him because he is such an inferior before God. And I think that paints a beautiful picture of the attitude of this particular prayer. Humility, I mean, that's that's huge. And and it's such a, it's almost, to me, it's poetic, you know, with, with God just bending down to him so gently, so, so tenderly to listen to him. And that's, I think, the image that we want to have here. So we've got three basic prayer observations from David's prayer here. We're going to be doing prayer observations throughout the entire podcast. But David's prayer, at its very outset, there were three things going on. What was the first one? Was formed because of a desperate complaint, Rick. All right. He had a desperate complaint. We know that he's running from his own son. There's rebellion, and it's a really, really bad situation. So for us, we got to look at this and say, well, are we desperate? Do we have desperation in our lives? And what are we doing with that desperation if we had it? David brought that desperation before God. So the first part is it was formed because of desperation, a desperate complaint. What's next? Was humble. It was delivered with imploring to one above him. So, and, and that's such an important part of this thing. And the question we have to ask ourselves, are we first humble when we pray? Before anything and everything else, are we humble? And, and Jonathan, I want to pause here and just tell a quick little story about prayer because this is a point that I have 
I, I get bothered by is the idea of being humble in prayer. I had an experience several years ago while I was working. I work with clients, you know, with various things. And I was sitting with a client and, you know, I got to talking to him and he was a Christian and we were talking about Christian things at the end of our appointment. I'm getting ready to go. And he looks at me and says, well, can I pray for you? And I said, sure. So I, I had never had a client ask me that before. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. So he started to pray. And in his prayer, he became more and more demonstrative and commanding. And it's like, he's saying, Lord, I command that the roads be clear so Brother Rick can get to his destination. I command that, you know, Brother Rick's day go in accordance with how he would have it to go, to be a blessing. And, and as he kept going through his prayer, Jonathan, I got more and more disturbed inside. And when he finished, I thanked him. I said, that's really, that's, that was different. I generally don't pray that way, but I appreciate, you know, what you're trying to do. Thanks very much. And I left. And when I got in my car, the first thing I did is I bowed my head and I apologized. I said, dear Lord, I am so sorry. I, I do not want any part of commanding anything from you. You know, and, and it really made a deep impact on how we should approach prayer. So just a very personal experience along the idea of, of trying to be humble with our prayer. What's the third prayer observation here? Well, David was praising of God and therefore praiseworthy by us. We can praise what he did because he was praising of God. So would we fit the precision of this mold of that desperate complaint and great humility? I mean, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. See, prayer is an effective, it is effective when it's a result of a prayerful life. That, well, that, say that again, Rick. Okay. Rick that, that's important. Okay. Prayer is effective when it is a result of a prayerful life. That, Jonathan, is the key to everything. So look, there seem to be a lot of similarities between last week's complaining episode and today's prayer episode. There may be, but let's stay focused. So far, prayer is a clear exercise in humility. Is prayer an entitlement to all or a privilege for a few? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. You know, living in a time as we do when including everyone for everything seems to be the very most important issue of life. The answer to the prayer entitlement question is not an easy one. We need to ease into this answer by carefully following, following what David prays next in this psalm. So, is prayer a privilege for everyone? Let's take a look. Is it an entitlement? Is it, I mean, is it, can everybody just pray? Is that the way it works? Let's take a look. Again, let's go back to Psalm 143. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 to complete the first little segment of this psalm. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places, like those who have long been dead. So, Jonathan, I just told you that little story about, you know, not telling God what to do. And yet, David in this psalm in verse 2 says, you know, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. Is he telling God how to go about his business? <laughs> no, I don't think so, Rick. Okay. I, but here's another question. Do we ever tell God how to go about his business? We shouldn't. Right. But do we? 
That's the big, that's a that's an important question. So so just to get some commentary, some background on this odd phrase where David says, "Don't enter into judgment with me, your servant." Is he saying to God, "Just don't judge me"? You know, a lot of people say that to to their friends or you know their peers when they're doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing. They, don't judge me. And for some reason, that's supposed to be like putting up this bubble around you that you're now impervious. And I mean, is that what David is saying to God? Let's say Albert Barnes has some good commentary on this. Do not deal with me on the ground of justice as toward thee. Do not mark my own offenses against thee. When I plead that justice may be done as between me and my fellow man, while I plead that thou wouldst judge righteously between me and them, I am conscious that I would not claim they needed interposition on the ground of any righteousness toward thee. There I must confess that I am a sinner. There I can rely only on mercy. There I could not hope to be justified. So what he's saying is, God, I'm speaking to you about justice between humans, not about our inability to be just before you. Because he says in the very next line, no man living in your sight is righteous. And, you know, I would add, including and especially me. And so David is not telling God what to do. He's simply reminding God, reminding himself that I am not righteous before you, but justice between men is something that you do help us with. And I'm asking for your help on that. So it's an interesting thing. It kind of looks like he's commanding God, do not enter into judgment upon your servant. But that's not at all, not at all what he's saying. And so if you want to look at how to pray, you've got to look at how it was done. Not what seems to be, not what people may say, but how it was actually done. So we've gone through just verses 2 and 3 now of Psalm 143. We did verse 1 in the last segment. Let's do some prayer observations on verses 2 and 3. David's prayer life showed us that... His personal state was not good before God. He shows us that. He's clear with that. He makes that a statement. Now, you think God already knows that, right? Of course he does. <laughs> But for us to restate it means that we are acknowledging it. And that is important when we go before God. So David does this very good thing. He says to God, look, I know I'm a mess before you. The question is, What is our view of our personal state? If we're going around commanding God, we must think our personal state's in pretty good shape. That's not a good I, thing. I, I don't think we should go there. <laughs> well, no, and I'm going to keep bringing it up, though, because that is a fault of a lot of teaching about prayer. You know, Jesus says, you know, uh, ask and you receive, seek and you find, knock and it shall be opened. And those verses are taken so dramatically out of context by so many people because it's like, okay, you've got the power. God's your personal genie. Rub the lamp three times and guess what? You get your three wishes. No, 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 no. That's not what prayer is at all. And if we go down that road, Jonathan, we're going down a road that God's just not going to hear. Um, So David put his personal state before God as not good. He said it for his own benefit. God already knew. What's the second observation here? Prayer, David's prayer shows us that. In spite of being unworthy, he still complained showing boldness in his humility. For his heart was for God. So he knows he's unworthy, 
but he brings his complaint to God anyway. And that's such an important point. He brings it even though he's unworthy because God said you can. And of course, for a Christian, our worthiness is through Jesus. And we come to God through Christ because he covers our sins for us. So the question we have to ask ourselves here is David has this bold humility. And it sounds weird to talk about humility as being bold. It really does. (laughs) But it's really important to know who and what you are and to lay it before God and say, I know I'm a mess, but I still need you for this. I still have a question about that. I'm still striving to find deliverance in this. Bold humility. So the question is, how strong is our humility? Not how bold. I don't want to go to how bold is our humility because we get too too uppity about that too easily. <laughs> Watch me. I'll show you bold humility. <laughs> That's exactly opposite of where we want to go here. <laughs> how strong is our humility? Is it? Does it bring us down as far as we need to be brought down before God? Are we willing to really be prostrate before him in a, in a figurative sense to say, look, I, I got nothing, nothing to bring you, nothing of worth, but I know you give me this opportunity. So that's the, bold, this, the strength of humility. Great quote here by J. Sidlow Baxter on prayer. Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. And, you know, that's an important point because people can be, you know, maybe you're persecuted. Maybe you're, you're not having trials with the people around you. They can, they can react to all kinds of things that you say, say to them, say back to them or do or, or try to be an example or whatever. But they can't touch your prayers if your prayers are in the right format and the right, the, the right attitude, I should say, before God. They can't touch them. And the power that your prayers can bring to your life, now look, I already said, will prayer change your life? No, and here I'm saying the power that your prayers can bring to your life can change things. And Rick, think about this. Those prayers can be for those that are persecuting you. Now, wouldn't that be a great way to pray with humility? I mean, think about that. Think about praying for their well-being and meaning it, not just saying, well, I know this will sound good to God if I start with this. So let me just preface it so I can get to the real issue. Dear God, help them be nicer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not about that. No, that's a great, 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 great point. So, so Jonathan, again, let's let's take a moment. Let's go back to the meditation thing. Now, in the first segment, we we listened to what is Bible medita- biblical meditation from Unlearn, and he talked about Eastern meditation, and that's someplace we should not go. In this soundbite, he's going to talk more about what Christian meditation is and how it works. So let's listen to this. This is quite contrary to biblical meditation, which seeks to fill our minds with the Word of God and to focus our thoughts on what the Bible says. Biblical meditation involves pondering, thinking deeply, and trying to gain deeper understanding. This type of meditation actively engages the prefrontal cortex, causing us to gain wisdom, understanding, and self-control while strengthening our mind against the attack of the enemy. When we meditate on the scriptures, we are preparing our mind for success. Meditating on God's Word brings about a renewing of our mind, which causes a change in our behavior, enabling us to do according to all that is written in it. So the idea of Christian meditation is not to empty your mind, but to fill it. 
fill it with goodness, fill it with godliness, fill it with godly righteousness, fill it with scripture, fill it with Jesus, fill it with those things, because then your mind can be focused and pondering on that which is good, and you're not leaving room for that which is nasty. So great, great thoughts there that they really appreciate. So look, look back to, to, to the David and the psalm and prayer. With David's attitude of strong humility in place, the next set of scriptures, or this next uh, scripture, sets the foundation for our main question about prayer as an entitlement. Because the main question for this segment is, is prayer an entitlement? Is everybody like, okay, hey, you get your opportunity to pray, and you get yours, and you get yours, and everybody gets theirs? Or is it more of a privilege? Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, sets the foundation for answering that question. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So those verses are really powerful because they're all about Jesus. We are unworthy, yet Jesus opens a door of worthiness for us. Not because we're so great, but because he's so great. You see, his life showed us that door of, uh, of worthiness. His death unlocked the door of worthiness, and his resurrection held open the door of worthiness in his name. And, and Jonathan, I don't know. I don't know how, how we can stress enough that it's all about him and really not about us. That's right. We, we, we have to understand that it's Jesus' worthiness that gives us this incredible opportunity to talk to God. And, if it's, and, and a quick example, Cornelius. You remember Cornelius, yes. the first Gentile convert? His prayers were not answered until the door opened right. for him to be heard. Remember that? What was said was his prayers went up as a memorial before God. And until the opportunity where Peter came to him and showed him the gospel, that memorial then became effective in real life. So you're right. That's the way Christian prayer works. It's all about him. And folks, if we begin to think that it's all about me, then we're lost. Now, should we be praying about ourselves and for ourselves? Yes, we should. But with the attitude that it's all about him and him first. If prayer were an entitlement, then everyone would have an equal opportunity and privilege to pray. Does the Bible tell us that, that everybody's got equal opportunity? Well, first, it seems as though we have to have the correct perspective about our God and about ourselves. We get that from Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is a really amazing scripture, Jonathan. And I just want to just pause for a moment here. God Almighty says, I dwell on a high and holy place. And you know, you can easily get that picture conjured in your mind and you can see it. 
God Almighty dwells in this high and holy place that is above all and beyond all. And you look at that, and we're breathless with, with, the, with, the, with the magnitude of that picture. But where else does it say he dwells? With a contrite and lowly of spirit. You think about that, and you take that magnitude of the high and holy place and say, but you know where else he dwells? According to his own words, he dwells with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What an amazing picture. God dwells with those whose spirit is, is, is broken. And you say, okay, that's not all. There's, there's got to be more to it. But it gives you a sense of where God looks, where God lives. That's an important beginning point. So the first point, correct perspective about our God and about ourselves. The second point is we need to be actively seeking righteousness. God's righteousness and not worldly rights. There is oh, that's a, that's a, that's a mouthful right there, Rick. <laughs> not worldly rights. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and 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 again, folks, get it get it clear in your mind what you should be after. If you're after worldly rights and you're praying for them before God, you're praying about and for all of the wrong things. Let's look at Proverbs 15 verses 8 and 9 because this explains it to us. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. So he talks, now look, when, when someone who is wicked, who is not godly, makes a sacrifice to God, it's an abomination to him. They might be doing the right thing, but they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. God will not accept that. All right, but the prayer of the upright, God delights in that. The way of the wicked, the way of those who are not seeking godliness. Now understand, this is not a comparison between somebody who's good and somebody who's bad. This is a comparison between godliness and ungodliness. Big difference between the two. The way of the wicked is an abomination to God, but he loves those who pursue godly righteousness. So when you look at this, Jonathan, prayer is not for everyone. It's not. Okay? It's a matter of fact, it's actually probably for very few when you think about it and you start to put it into its, into its context of where it belongs. Why? Because God wants your heart and mind to be in the right place so that he can bless you. He is not going to arbitrarily just throw out blessings because, well, you know, that person just prayed. So no, 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 no. It's much, much, much more than that. So, so our prayer observation here is what? God is selective when it comes to those he will focus on and bless. He is selective. We have to understand that and be willing to accept God is selective. So, look, at this point, one thing is for sure. The privilege of prayer is a pretty lofty privilege. It absolutely is. Now let's go further. God hears us when we seek him. What other things should we focus on even outside of prayer? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. 
Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. See, prayer in its most effective form is a function of a life that is striving towards God. This is incredibly illustrated by David in the next few verses of Psalm 143, as he will next not only express how his trial has affected him, he will demonstrate a God-fearing way of living in between his prayers. And remember, Jonathan, the thing that we were saying at the very end of the very first segment was prayer is effective when it is a result of a prayerful life. That's what we're getting back to here. What does it mean to have a prayerful life? Well, in this segment, we're really going to be looking at the things that that happen outside of the actual event of prayer that create a prayerful life. So to begin that, David has laid his complaint before God, and he now tells God how he feels. With bold humility, Rick. Bold humility. Now, think about that again. It sounds strange to say it, but he does. He speaks to God with boldness in his humility because he's understanding how unworthy he is. But in spite of his unworthiness, he knows that God has given allowance for us to bring our hearts before him. And God will accept it if you are trying to be godly. So let's look at Psalm 143, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Selah. So, therefore, he's, he's saying how incredibly difficult his trial is. My spirit's overwhelmed. Uh, my heart is appalled within me. And then, he's, then he talks about the things that he's been doing. Because, you know, Jonathan, he couldn't be remembering the days of old and meditating on all of God's doings and musing on the work of his hands all at that same moment. No, that, of course not. So he's recounting his life experience toward God. So what, what's our prayer observation here? Well, David's present challenges have wrenched his attention away from God, and he expresses his need to get back to his center. So David is acknowledging that this trial of mine, this difficulty of mine, has been so, so, so destructive in my own head that I have, I have forgotten all of my center. I'm, I'm, I'm mixed up. And he's, he's saying, I'm reminding myself of all of the ways to get myself back in order. So the, the question is, he's expressing his need to get back to his center. When we pray, are we so deep and clear in our approach to God? Are we willing to admit, God, I'm off center. I lost myself. You know, I won't go into details. I was having a very, very difficult experience earlier today, as a matter of fact. Oh, boy. And things, it, was, it was very, it was, it, was, it was harsh. It was difficult. And I was not a happy camper. Let's just leave it at that. And after a bit, and after going through some things, I sat there and I smiled and I put my head down and I said, dear Lord, I am so sorry. I'm off. I'm off. I, I, I just lost my perspective there for a few minutes. I'm, I'm, help me come back. I, I, need, I, I don't like it living here. I, you know, it's not good for me. And, and it was a very vivid experience for that moment, Jonathan, to look at myself and to say, wow, you know, you're doing a podcast on this just a few hours from now. Get your head right, Rick. 
<laughs> so, you know, again, let's the getting our head right really does have a lot to do with the meditation part. So let, let's go back to how to meditate. Uh, well, this is a different um, different source, how to meditate from, from spiritualdirection.com, uh, about just what meditation should look like, should feel like, should, should be like. Let's listen. What really helps when we want to engage in Christian meditation is having a structure for our meditation, kind of like training wheels that can help us move forward when we feel distractions or tired or we just, our faith is kind of weak. But the structure I recommend is the four C's. And the first C is concentrate. And that's really important. We need to quiet down, turn off the cell phone, go to a quiet corner, uh, make an act of faith that God is there, caring about me, wanting to talk with me. Uh, really concentrate, put myself in God's presence and kind of tune in to Him. And then once I'm concentrated, then I begin to consider. And consider is the second C, where I, I take this, the text of the scriptures or a spiritual book and I read it reflectively, slowly. I think about it. I digest it. I ask questions of it. You know, what's going on here? What does this tell me about God? I consider the revelation that God has given me about who He is and how much He loves me. So those are the first two or the four C's. And these, again, very practical applications of, of meditation from a Christian perspective. So for David to get back to his center, he uses several thought training techniques. You know, and one of the things, Jonathan, I just want to stop here for a second. We've been doing a lot with the Psalms recently on the podcast. And yes. it's amazing to me how much David knew about technique of communication and the technique of praise and the technique of prayer and the technique of complaint. It's really amazing because we live in an age where, you know, it's all broken down into, into pieces and parts and, 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 and what moves and what doesn't and how does it work and why does it work. Thousands of years ago, he knew all those answers before all modern technology was ever there. It amazes me. So this demonstrates that David was really working on getting his mind right before he prayed and that he knew he was off-center and did not want to stay that way. And that's a powerful, powerful lesson here in this psalm. We're going to be looking, um, breaking it down now. We read verses five, uh, 4 through 6. There's several pieces. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jonathan. Well, the, this gives me solace that David had ups and downs just like we do. Yes. And what an example that it's okay to have ups and downs, but the focus is stay close to God in both of those and follow how David did it so that, that we can stay on track. And I mean, this, I'm, I'm really enjoying the practicality of how David is just putting his heart out there to the Lord just the way we want to. And, and, and you're right. It does give us solace. That's a great word because it gives us the sense of, okay, so I'm all right. Even though I'm messed up in my own head, I'm all right. And the reason I'm all right when I'm messed up in my own head is because I'm trying to get back, trying to get back, trying to get back. And that's what David had to do constantly. He had horrific experiences and he had to work his way back, work his way back, work his way back. So now we, we already read verses five and six, but we're going to break verses five and six down into, into several phrases from these verses because it helps us to see what he was doing to try to get himself back. So verse five, what's the first phrase? I remember the days of old. He remembers the days of old. This is a powerful way to clear your mind. Remember good things. Remember delivering things. Just go back and when life is awful, remember goodness, godly goodness. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 3 is a great example of what David might have been referring to, but he says, you know, remember the days of old. 
you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness, that he might humble you, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He let you be hungry and fed you with manna, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So remember good things. This is a powerful way to clear your mind. And Jonathan, this doesn't happen, have to happen just in prayer. It can happen before prayer and after prayer. It's all about getting your mind cleared and back to remembering good because remembering good opens the door to a positive thinking pattern. Rick, I have a good friend. Um, he always reminds me and others of the value of journaling, remembering those experiences of the past and how God overruled in your lives to keep your faith strong when, when you're having a weak moment. Go back, remember the good things. And journaling, I think, is just a great way to do it. And so what you're saying is that there's, there's several ways of remembering the days of old. They can be the days of old in your own life. Yes. Which are really powerful. And they can be the days of old in Scripture where you look back and say, look at God's deliverance there. And then Perfect. you, And if you do the two together, man, that's yeah. a harmony that can't be beat. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. So remember the days of old. Then the next phrase in verse 5 is what? I meditate on all your doings. All right. Thinking deeply upon what God does. Uh, does this is a powerful way to refocus your mind now look you've got to clear your mind out from the from the junk so you know you remember the days of old meditate on all your doings is now a refocusing which is built on clearing your mind because again you don't leave your mind empty you clear out the junk and now you've got to refocus it so meditate what does the word actually mean the scriptural word for meditate in this verse this is interesting rick to murmur in pleasure or anger by implication to ponder. All right. So it could be to murmur in pleasure or anger. You know, it's like burring under your breath. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jonathan. I said, first, Jonathan said this, and boy, wait till I get to <laughs> It could be that in a very negative sense. Or it could be to ponder. You know, and you think about the idea of pondering. We don't take time to ponder anymore. We tweet. Life is too crazy. Right. We tweet, we text, we Instagram, we do all of those quick, fast, fast, fast things. And it's all quick, quick, quick. What's the next stimulation? What's the next stimulation? What's the next stimulation? What's the next stimulation? Stop. Ponder. I meditate on all your, 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 your doings. Focus your mind. Refocus your mind. Think about. Slow down and think about those things. One of the great things to ponder is this next scripture, Acts 3, 19 to 21. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things which were spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So that's a verse that gives us a sense of something incredibly powerful. It gives us a sense of a big picture. It talks about re whom the heavens must receive or retain until the period of restoration of, oh, just the few who love God. Of all things. That's enormous thinking. And if we can ponder on the enormity of the restitution process in God's plan, 
that's a big picture, Jonathan, and I picked a really big picture item on purpose here. Because you look at that, and, and it's, it's, it's inspiring, and it's so big. You mean the restitution of everything? Yes. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Right. Meditating on God's plans and purposes engages that positive thinking pattern that started when we cleared our mind toward becoming a positive thinking habit. And Jonathan, we are so weak and so full of holes in our, in, in our, in our discipline and in our desires and in our focus that we need to do these things again and again and again. And you know, and it's no wonder that David, that David didn't write them all, but there's 150 Psalms. There's a reason there's so many. <laughs> you know, Keep be, focus. <laughs> yes. And they are awesome tools for bringing us back for clearing our minds, for meditating on something, on kind of the, the, the big picture of, of God's work. So meditating, to ponder, to think about, to just slow down and think about. What's the next phrase in uh, verse 5 of Psalm 143? I muse on the work of your hands. All right, so he separates out meditating and musing. Meditate on all your doings, on the bigger picture. I muse on the work of your hands. And that's kind of like pondering the specifics of God's creativeness is a powerful way to recenter your mind. So we have to clear our mind from the junk. Then we start to refocus our mind. And then once your mind starts to refocus, it can now begin to recenter itself. So you see the process? Remember the days of old. Start with something that's pretty simple. Remember when? Like you said, journaling. Remember when God delivered me? Remember when God delivered Israel? Or remember when God delivered Paul and Silas? Or remember when? And then, and then you begin to meditate on the big plan. God's plan is a plan of deliverance. Deliverance for all men. What a great thing. And now you start to get down to more focused thinking, musing on the work of your hands. The word for muse, what does that mean? To ponder, that is by implication, converse with oneself and hence aloud or transitively utter. Okay, so it's kind of like talking to yourself. It says, to converse with oneself. I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but here's the question. When you talk to yourself, what kind of language is it? Is it powerful, godly, uplifting language? Or is it, wow, Jonathan, you messed that one up. Uh, yeah, a little bit of both, I'd, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> but see, what this is suggesting, because most of us, the way we talk to ourselves is not pleasant. And I can vouch for that because I do not talk to myself in a pleasant way. I get very mad at myself on a regular basis, and I just don't like myself when I, I'm, I'm off. I just don't. I get really frustrated. And that's not a healthy thing, okay? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm admitting that. Um, but this is suggesting instead of talking to myself about me, why do I have to be the subject? Let me talk to myself about the greatness of the work of God. Let's look at Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So pondering the specifics of God's creative power solidifies a positive thinking habit with awe and praise. The advantage of having a dog, Rick, is you have to let him out at night and when you open the door and step out and look up, it's wonderful. So I'm very thankful we have a dog so that I do that. And one of the rare times that I, I express myself is I look up there and I, I may even yell out at night, 
That's my dad. He made that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the point. And that's such a beautiful picture. That's my dad. He made that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and when you consider the works and, and his hev- the he- of, the, of the heavens and the work of his fingers and the moon and the stars and the beauty and the magnitude of the universe, the question is, what is man that, our, my, that thou art mindful of him? See, that's something to ponder. That's something to talk to yourself about. Yes. Because it's the details of the bigness of God's plan. And when we ponder the specifics of God's creative power, it solidifies that positive thinking habit with awe and praise. So David is telling us through these verses, Psalm 143, verses 4 to 6, he is telling us the things that he's doing in between to keep focused. And he's still having a hard time, but he's doing them. And then finally in verse 6, what's the last phrase we want to touch on? I stretch out my hands to you. Now, this is an instinctive result of a mind that's recommitted to God. You can't help but reach for him once you've recommitted your mind to him. Nehemiah 8.10, we talked about Nehemiah just a few weeks ago. This is a, a, a great scripture that, that, that helps us see this. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Whatever it is, don't be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He can carry you through if you are looking for his will and his way. Well, Rick, for stretching out your hands, I see many Christians that listen to sermons and are raising their hands or they're singing songs and and praying and raising their hands. It's emotional, obviously. Yeah. Uh, But is it reverential? To be honest, it kind of makes me feel uncomfortable when I see it being done. You I know, don't know about you. Well, and I, and I get and I get what you're saying because it, it what it does is it takes something solemn and turns it into something emotional. And if we settle in with the emotion rather than the solemnity of the message or the prayer or the praise, we got to be careful because in my mind, and, and folks, this is going to sound crazy, but in my mind, our emotions can really mess up the solemnity of our reverence. Not to say you shouldn't have emotion, but emotion shouldn't be the driving force. The heart dedication should be the driving force. So look, a powerful and prayerful life is a meditative and mindful life. Prayer works in a life that is meditative and mindful, and this entire segment has been about that. So thus far, the connection between prayer and a prayerful life is now beginning to come alive. It is an important connection, so let's go deeper. Back to focusing on prayer. God helps those who seek Him, but what about when we mess up? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. As is obvious by David's own admission, meditating and pondering on God and His greatness are not always enough to keep us centered. We fall because we're fallen and we need God's mercy. Our own inconsistency must be paramount in our minds when approaching the throne of grace. You see, our problem is that we focus on God through a defective lens. And when that lens is defective, you gotta check and recheck to make sure you're seeing things clearly. And Jonathan, too often, the defectiveness of ourselves gets in the way 
of our prayer and our praise. And again, it's really not about emotion. It's about dedication. It's about decision. It's about clarity, and it's about moving your life forward. That's what makes prayer vital. Great, great quote here from Corey Ten Boom. Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. I love that because the idea behind that is that bring everything before God. Just bring it before God. Why? Because he's there. He wants you to just walk in the right way and, and, and bring everything before him and let him handle those things. Looking for daily inspiration and hope? Find us at CQ Podcast on Facebook or CQ Bible Podcast on Instagram or CQ Bible Podcast on Twitter and CQ Bible Podcast on YouTube. That's all one word, CQ Bible Podcast, social media used for good. Yeah, so CQ Bible Podcast is all you really need to remember, and, and we can connect with you all kinds of different ways. And again, think about social media in a whole different way. We're not trying to, 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 to clutter. What we're trying to do is inspire, to give you something to carry with all of these things. That's the point of what we try to accomplish with social media. So look, thus far we have seen prayer as a humble framing of a complaint before our sovereign God. With the complaint and its effects before God, David, in this psalm, now begins his petition to God. So it took him a while to get to the petition because he laid things out. And you know, that's the one, another beautiful thing about the example of prayer here, Jonathan, is David doesn't rush through it. You know, he doesn't say, well, God, look, I got a problem. You already know what the problem is. So just, you know, can you help me? David lays it out. Why? Because when we are forced to lay out, to speak to God with what's bothering us, it helps us to understand it and gives God more room to bless us, to help us, to guide us, to deliver us by his grace. So his petition, because it's such a big problem, his petition in this prayer in Psalm 143 begins with great urgency. Psalm 143, um, let's do verse 7 first. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Now, you think about it. That's a pretty serious situation. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit, I'm, I'm losing my grip. And this is powerful because remember in the last segment, David talked about all the things that he was doing. He remembered the days of old. You know, he pondered on the bigness of God's plan. He, he mused on the, on, the, on the focusing of the, of the details of God's plan. And he's still losing it. That's how difficult his trial was. And folks, like you said earlier, Jonathan, what, what was the word you used? It gave you... Um, solace. Solace. It gives us solace to realize that such a godly man could have such troubles because, you know, I get like that. And it, it does. It's like, whew, okay, there's a, there's a precedence for my trauma in my own life. Let me lay it before God the way David did. So his petition then becomes more grounded and less emotional because he says, okay, God, I need you now. And then verse 8 is what? Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. So David only asks for deliverance. Now, he asks for deliverance at the end of that verse, but he only asks for deliverance after 
he displayed a willingness to do other things. What was the first thing in that verse he asked? He, he displayed a willingness for. Let me hear your loving kindness. Okay, let me stop and listen. What was next? Teach me the way in which I should walk. Show me. Let me stop, listen, and observe, and then learn. So he's not, you know, he just said, answer me quickly, O oh Lord, I need you right now. But he's saying, I'm willing to learn step by step because that is what's going to help me. It, because you are the one I'm, I'm praying to. And then he asks for deliverance. So what's our prayer observation for, for this part of Psalm 143? Well, Rick, David's plea for deliverance is accomplished by continually elevating God and keeping himself low. And, you know, that is a constant, common, reoccurring theme of this psalm and pretty much every psalm. It's that sense of, I really don't bring anything to the table except my best effort, which I know is worth, worth, worthless, but I'm bringing it anyway. You know, that's bold humility. God, I can give you the best I have. I know it's going to fail, and it's okay because it's the best I've got, and by your grace, it can be some, become something meaningful. So, you know, his, his plea for deliverance is by continually elevating God and keeping himself low. Are we so clear and persistent in our pleas? Do we elevate ourselves before God? Do we start to tell God what to do? Do we tell God about his business? Do we tell him what's important and what's not important? Because if we do, folks, what are we doing? We're changing roles. And I don't know about you, but I am no, I am no God. Okay, <laughs> let's get that really clear, really fast. We should not ever lift ourselves like that before our Heavenly Father, ever. Okay, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to uh, how to meditate, spiritualdirection.com. Remember, there were four steps, the four C's he was talking about with meditation. The first two were concentrate and consider. Let's go to the, the, the last two in that little four-step process for meditation. And as I consider, what will happen is my heart will be moved, and I'll be moved to want to say something to God in response to what I've been considering. And that's the third C, which is converse. I may want to thank him. I may want to beg his forgiveness. I may just simply want to praise him. That's my wonder at his goodness. And you can go back and forth between those two C's for as long as you want. You can consider and then converse, and then when you're done talking, go back to consider and then converse again. And then at the end of your time of meditation, whether it's five minutes or 15 or half an hour, uh, you want to finish up with the fourth C, which is commit. Renew my commitment to loving God and to fulfilling His will for me this day. I, I really love those four Cs. They're simple, and the way it ends is so powerful to me. Whatever the meditation, let it bring you to that stronger, firmer, clearer mental and, and, and physical commitment of myself to what's really most important. So uh, the, the, the four C's again were uh, concentrate, consider, converse, and commit. And, uh, you know, Jonathan, I, I appreciate this process. And, you know, before hearing it, I realized that in a lot of my own study, there's a lot of that that goes on, is looking at the scriptures and reading them and saying, okay, what are these scriptures saying? I, I'm reading them. I know what they say, but what are they saying? And I love, I just love to look at the scriptures and say, yeah, but what are they saying? <laughs> and there's such a blessing in that. It really, really is. 
So the circumstances of David's current prayer were about those who were after him, those who were after his life, literally. David maintained the same posture in his prayers, even when he was the perpetrator and the evildoer. See, David didn't just save his prayers for when somebody was after him. He also prayed when he was the guilty party, when he was the one who had committed the sins, when he was the one who had distorted God's will and God's way. David still prayed. Psalm, one, Psalm 32 was David's recounting of his own horrible sins and God's mighty forgiveness. Now, David, it's interesting, in this particular psalm, begins with the end result. So Psalm 32, verses 1 through 8, verses 1 and 2 are showing you the happily ever after, if you will, of this experience. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So it's like, wow, this is a great psalm. This is all about goodness and greatness. Okay, okay, we, you made a little sidestep and you messed up a little bit, so God forgives you and you're a happy guy. But there is a depth to this that is profound. Because when you realize the kinds of sins that were behind this, oh, I don't know, things like adultery. Murder. Murder, things like that. You think... Wow, you got to that point of being happy because your transgression is forgiven? How did you get there? How did you get there? Well, he tells us what happened. Verse 3, he recounts the pain of his sin and its aftermath while he stood in denial of his actions. Because typically, that's what we do. We mess up. And then we have that period of denying, oh, no, it's not that bad. I, don't, it, it, I didn't mean it, so it doesn't count. Or it's not as bad as it looks. Or it's not as bad as it feels. It just, it just didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. You know, we can make up all the excuses. Well, here, here's, here's what happened to David, verse, verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. That's a very graphic description of a man who embarked on a road of self-destruction. Because he, w it says, while I was silent, while I wasn't confessing my sin to you, while I was bent on hiding it, it was destroying me. And again, Jonathan, David is brilliant. Because in our science of today, we tell people, ah, we have uncovered the secret of a happy life. And that is to not stuff those feelings inside, but to be able to, to, to let them out and to be accountable. And we are so wise in our saying that, well, thousands of years ago, David told us to do that in a very powerful, powerful way. God sent Nathan the prophet to him, and David finally began to own his sins. Remember when Nathan came to him? Remember what he said to him? You are the man. That's right. You know, he told him a story. David got mad at the result of the story, pronounced judgment, and then Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man who has sinned. It took someone else to tell David, but David was big enough to hear it and respond. Verse 5 of uh, Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. 
So it says, then I acknowledge my sin. It took a lot for him to acknowledge it. it. He needed help, but he took the help. He was humble enough to receive the help, and the acknowledgement of his sin was the ownership of his sin. Then it says, after this, after this being forgiven because he finally owns the sin, David then speaks of the lesson learned and the life-saving value of honesty before God. And that is a key element of prayer, the life-saving value of honesty before God. Verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 32. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress, the rush of mighty water shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You persevere, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Selah. You know, he's got that word Selah in this psalm several times. Pause and consider. Because he is in eight verses wrapping up an experience that was life-changing an experience that his sin was so gross it nearly killed him. But God was able to forgive him because David was able to humble himself enough to be in a position to receive forgiveness. So really powerful, powerful stuff. But he says, everybody, you know, the life-saving value of honesty before God, that's one of the keys of prayer. So, so folks, you know, the idea is not to tell God what you think he wants to hear. That's not prayer. That's being a parrot. That's mimicking. And and it doesn't get you anywhere. It's being honest before God as you strive to be godly in your life. David finally completes the process by teaching that which he has so deeply learned. In verse 8 is a great culmination for this experience. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So, you know, to get to a point of sinning so badly, of denying it, of having to be told, of hearing it, accepting it, owning it, being accountable for it, and suffering the consequences, now David is at a point where it's good because I know God carries me. I mean, Jonathan, what a powerful example of, of, of prayer changing somebody's life, namely David. So three, three quick points uh, on, on, on prayer, you know, in relation to Psalm 32. In our prayers, are we this humble? You see the humility it took. It took somebody else telling him and he acknowledging that. Are we that humble? Or are we like, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I'll leave. Look, I got this. Leave me alone. I mean, I don't know. That kind of humility is hard to find. What else? Are we honest enough to be vulnerable as David was? <laughs> you know, nobody likes being vulnerable. I was talking to a brother yesterday about being vulnerable, and uh, it's not a comfortable place to be. But if we're honest, honest enough to be vulnerable before God, it can be a life-changing experience. And what's the third point? Are we willing to give our issues so wholly to God and to let Him manage them and guide us? Is that our attitude as we approach the privilege of prayer? Or is our attitude about, look, God, there are things that I want, things that I need, and let's get it straight. I need them now. And it's got to be blue. You know, I mean, <sighs> we get utterly confused. And God is not going to be present in those kinds of prayers. So look, prayer 
obviously means a whole lot more than speaking words in God's general direction. It certainly does. So let's finally get down to it and specifically answer the original question. Will prayer change your life? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. So let's start that specific answer by simply saying that it all depends. <laughs> there I am, very committed, okay? <laughs> it all depends on what you mean by change your life. If you mean that it makes you feel better, then sure, prayer can change that, but most likely only on a temporary basis. If you mean change the way you live and think every day, then the answer is a definite maybe. <laughs> because it's never that simple. Too often, we as Christians want others to believe, and we say, just pray, it'll change your life. You know, just you watch how God's going to answer your prayer when you pray. And we are essentially misleading others if we are not telling them that prayer is an essential part of a prayerful life, a life that has the actions, the activities, the thinking, and the devotion that goes with prayer. And then you can see something different. But it's, don't fool yourself. The, 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 the prayer itself, by itself, make you feel happy, and it'll wear off. Not going to change anything. Well, Rick, prayer did change David's life. Yes. It changed his life because he was so thoroughly engaged in changing himself into becoming a more complete and faithful servant of God's will and God's way. That's why prayer changed his life, because he was engaged in the process that goes with Prayer. Psalm 143, the last verses, verses 10 through 12. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who have afflict my soul. For I am your servant. So there's a lot of things that go on in these verses here, okay? Go ahead. Yeah, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what? You have that look on your face like, what? wait. Cut off my enemies, destroy all those that afflict my soul. Now, that should not be our mindset, Rick. Now, remember, Stephen said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And okay. Jesus on the dying on the cross, the same thing. And how many times are we to forgive? 70 times 7, right? Right. We're, we don't, we're not supposed to cast vengeance from God to our enemies. <laughs> okay, so what do we do with this then? Yeah. You know, you know, you're saying, and you are absolutely 100% right. Our model for prayer is forive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Exactly. David's saying, go get him, God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why does he say that and we say something different? And the answer really is simple. Because David lived in the time of the law. The law covenant was built on justice. And God was very clear that justice would be done. And he said many times that those who come after you essentially are coming after me if you are following my will and my way. 
So David was praying absolutely appropriately as one who was under the law. But Jesus, for us, nailed that law to the cross. And that what we do is we take the principles, the moral principles of that law, in the Ten Commandments, for instance, we say these are the things that we need to live by, but we need to live by them in a higher way. Matthew chapter 5, look at how many times Jesus says, but I say unto you, you have heard it said this way, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who, who persecute you and despitefully use you. Higher way. So you're right, our prayers are not to be, God, even up the score with my enemies. Maybe we should pray for our enemies. That's what Jesus yes. said. Now, I didn't want to take away the value of these verses. Like, okay. I love his heart saying, teach me. Yeah. Let your good spirit lead me. Revive me, for I am your servant. Now, those are beautiful things that we want to exemplify. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's really important to get those out of this verse. David, again, is laying himself vulnerable before God in this wonderful, wonderful prayer. Teach me to do your will. In other words, I'm open to whatever direction you send me. I'm not trying to send you. I'm not telling you, God, look, God, I'm more comfortable doing your will this way than that way. So, you know, I'm just telling you, that's the way you're going to get it. That's, that's not yeah. David's <laughs> attitude. Teach me, like you said. Let your good spirit lead me revive me, you know, put all of these things together in, in a bigger and better way. Because why? Because you're the leader, I'm the servant. So let's take a look now at our prayer observation for Psalm 143, uh, verses 10 through 12. David left himself entirely at the disposal of God and his will. And again, the question, are we so willing to be so vulnerable to leave ourselves at the disposal of God and his will, entirely at the disposal of God and his will. Not partially, not when we feel like it, not when it suits us, not when it's convenient, but entirely all the time. That's how successful prayer actually does work. That's why prayer can change your life if. And we're going to get to a lot of the ifs in just a moment. Let's go to our last soundbite uh, from what biblical, uh, what is biblical meditation from Unlearn. And it talks about internal dialogue, about talking to ourselves. Let's listen. When we meditate on God's Word, we think about it over and over again, filling our mind with His Word. Biblical meditation is thinking, pondering, imagining, and speaking the Word of God. Biblical meditation also involves the internal dialogue that you have with yourself. Are you speaking God's Word to yourself, or are you filling your mind with negative and worldly thoughts? So, you know, biblical meditation encompasses a lot of things, encompasses scriptures. You know, part of meditation can also be as we have prayed, and we consider afterwards those things that we prayed about and we prayed for, and we look upon them, and we look upon them in light of God's will and God's way and God's overruling providence. That's meditation. That's appropriate meditation. It's filling our mind with scripturally sound, godly principles and thoughts that can lift us up. Go ahead. And when we meditate, we might realize the answer that to prayer that we asked maybe days, weeks, years ago, and all of a sudden he can enlighten us with, this is the answer. This is the direction I've been looking for. 
thank you. <laughs> yeah. If you don't take that time to meditate, you could miss out on the answers from the Lord. So really, and, and that's a really important point, because what we're saying is a prayer should not be just offered up and then forgotten about. Exactly. It has got to be something that's offered up in sincerity and saying, you know, I, I'm looking for the, I don't know. And sometimes God takes a long time to answer. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is simply wait. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And so, but if the meditating puts us in a mindset to see spiritually, because the, the basis of meditation is all about scriptural and, and, and godly things. So let's talk about how prayer can thoroughly change your life. Because remember, I started this segment by saying a definite maybe. Well, let's get specific. Prayer can thoroughly change your life if what? You are striving for a complete personal devotion to God's will which cannot be accomplished without a complete devotion of your own personal will. So prayer can thoroughly change your life if you are devoted to God's will and therefore devoted to the making sure your will is in line with his. See, we can be devoted to God's will but not want to change our own. Go God! Go God! Yeah, I love God's will! And I'm going to do things my way. But I love God's will. And I'm content the way I am. But I love God's will. Yeah, you can love it, but you're not devoted to it unless you're changing yourself. Hebrews 5, 5 through 9 are great verses along these lines. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also to another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, so what has that got to do with everything? Well, because Jesus had committed to be, being the Lamb of God, prayer delivered him through his suffering. Now, we're going to get to that in a moment, but his commitment is what it was spoken of just there. Because he's, it's talking about Jesus, a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a very specific, very unusual order of priesthood that you don't hear a whole lot about in Scripture. Matter of fact, you hear about Melchizedek and Jesus, and I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> so it gives you a sense that there's this high level of dedication and devotion. And what that dedication and devotion to being that sacrificial lamb of God brought was this, in verses 7 through 9 of Hebrews 5, the experience of Jesus because of his devotion. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. This is fascinating to me because, you know, we always think of Jesus as perfect, and he was. And we always think of Jesus as flawless, and he was. But this scripture is very specific, and it says he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, which meant he had a will that needed to be continually bent to a higher standard of doing what God would have him to do rather than what a human being would rather do. And that's the difference. He bent his will to that higher standard again and again and again, and Jesus showed us the necessity and power of prayer in his own personal experience because that made him faithful. The bending of his will and the prayerful life and attitude that went with that bending of his will.
Well, Rick, prayer can thoroughly change your life if what? Okay, if you are engaging in work that is godly and righteous, and not merely work that is good. Let's make sure we understand the difference. Prayer can change your life, but it's not just about being good. It's about being godly good. And Jonathan, here's the thing. You and I don't get to choose what's godly good. We don't get to decide, well, this is godly good, so I'll do this. It is all about biblical principle and teaching and example. It's all there, and when we want to make up some new godly good, we had better watch out. It happens all the time. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. And it's easy because, you know, we're in an age where all of the restrictions are lifted off. So it's great to be creative. And I look, I love creativity, but don't mess with godly principles when you get creative. Godly good is what it is, and it's no more and no less. Great example of godly good. This is a great scripture on this. This is Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 26. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, hang on a minute. We're talking about godly good, and this is what you bring me. <laughs> is this the right text, Rick? <laughs> it sounds so far off because the whole point is godly goodness. And we're saying prayer can thoroughly change your life if you're engaged in work that is godly and righteous and not just good. And now you read this text about 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 uh, tearing off the robes and beating them with robes and, and, and striking them and throwing it into the deepest prison and, be, and having their feet fastened in stocks. Now, there's godly good for you. Now, <laughs> this is Paul and Silas being put in prison. Here is the godly good. Here is the example of a prayerful life and what happens when you are living a prayerful life. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So that is the godly good. They were representatives of Jesus Christ, and they were severely punished for that. And at midnight, they are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Why would they do that? Because they were given an opportunity to suffer just like Jesus. And they're saying, I am privileged. Go ahead. And Rick, there's no indication here that they were praying for a miracle. No, they weren't. They were praying and singing praises. They're sitting there in stocks. They're bruised. They're bloody. They're beaten. But they're not broken. They're singing praise and they're praying. And then what does happen? Verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. You know, and then you, you look at that and you say, oh good, time to run, time to escape. You know, we don't have time for the rest of the text, but Paul and Silas didn't do that. No, they didn't. And again, the godly good that they were about was so permeating in their lives that their prayer yielded a blessing they were not anticipating. They were prepared to sit there in the cold, dark, damp prison in such a bad condition and just praise God. 
and God blessed them in a way that he, they never expected. Last quote here from Campbell Morgan. The supreme thing is worship. The attitude of worship is the attitude of a subject bent before the king. The fundamental thought is that of prostration, prostration over bowing down. So the whole idea here is it really does come down to worship. We can ask God, we can petition God for things, we can have supplication and, and all that, but it comes down to putting God above, 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 and ourselves low so that we can honor and praise God through Jesus and then accordingly act and ask. So Prayer, prayer can thoroughly change your life if what, Rick? One last if. Prayer can thoroughly change your life if you are engaged with others of like mind and devotion. This is not a solo act. It just isn't. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, and a lot of folks like to quote the last part of the scripture, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then they proceed to pray for themselves. You know, God, deliver me in this, and help me, help me in that, and this is what I want, and so forth and so on. But that phrase is in the context of praying for one another. And it's saying to us, you can effectively have change in the lives around you if you are fervent in your, in your prayerful life. And confessing your sins is being vulnerable to each other. Yeah, and nobody likes that, but everybody needs it. <laughs> That's right, we do. So, you know, th there is so much power in this discussion of, of prayer in, in today's podcast. And folks, you know, we really hope that you understand the importance of putting all of this in perspective, the importance of realizing that prayer is a part of a prayerful life. It's a part of a thoughtful, passionate life. It's not about emotion. It's about God first and going through Jesus and putting things in the right perspective. And God can bless you, but put all of those things in order. Don't just pray. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We will be back again next week, Lord willing, with another subject. But until then, will prayer change your life? I think that's up to you and how you live. Till next week, think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic suggest future topics, start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com, and don't forget to download our app. We'll be back next week.